Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel. We are in chapter 10. We, I can say um, fairly confidently that we're over halfway through with our study of uh, Mark's Gospel. Jesus according to the Bible, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. As we uh, go to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again as dependent people and pray to Him. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, indeed, we are absolutely dependent upon You. Father, You sustain us physically with food, with air, with water. You also sustain us spiritually through Your Word and Spirit. And so we pray, Father, that you would be pleased now to meet with your people as we gather to hear you speak to us through your word and by your spirit. Oh, Father, would you open our hearts to your word and open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts that we would know what we are to believe about you and what duty you require of us. And Father, as we do our duty, may we do it in the strength that you provide and with great gratitude and thanksgiving for all that you have given us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Think with me, if you would, um, about some situations, maybe presently in life, in the past, that upon first glance, or even upon further reflection, are impossible. Now, when you learn that something is impossible, how, how do you respond? How do you react to that news? Do you think either that someone hasn't tried hard enough to solve it, or rather that it's not even worth trying to solve? What happens when you are faced with an impossible situation, how do you respond? Do you give up and walk away or do you stay put and persevere? Well, in our text today, we will see Jesus through his teaching drive his disciples to the point of despair as they declare through a question that they and everyone is facing an impossible situation. Where are we in Mark? Well, we're in chapter 10. Today, we're with Jesus and his disciples on the way to Jerusalem, where Jesus will suffer, where he will die, but also where he will be raised from the dead. We've already seen in chapter 8 the confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, but we've also heard the call to discipleship, the call to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. And all throughout our time in Mark, those three questions Mark is presenting and he's answering, who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? Last week in chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, we saw what Jesus is like and what his disciples are to be like. 
We saw last week in our text that the kingdom of God is received and entered as a child. A child who is weak, helpless, and dependent. Jesus is making the point that the kingdom of God is not for the worthy and accomplished, but for those who admit they are desperately needy and completely dependent. Now this week, this theme of, the, of entrance into the kingdom of God continues. Everybody turn with me all the way back to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, you'll remember in verses 14 and 15, we read this. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's been Jesus's orienting ministry and mission. And we will see that unfolded today as once again, we see the theme of entrance into the kingdom of God. And yet today our focus will move from a child to a man who views himself as anything but weak and helpless and dependent. There is a traditional title to this story, the rich young ruler. In all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he is described as as having wealth, many possessions. He is rich. In Matthew, he is described as being young And in Luke, he's described as being a ruler. And so you put all three together and you have a rich, young ruler. Well, our approach to the text this morning will be to unpack four things. The question of the man, the command of Jesus, the question of the disciples, and finally, the declaration of Jesus. Join with me now as I read Mark 10, verses 17 through 27. And as he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Let's first consider the question of this man. Remember the scene. Jesus is continuing on his journey with his disciples to Jerusalem. This man approaches Jesus. Notice he ran to Jesus. He's a healthy man. Doesn't have to be brought on a stretcher. Doesn't have to crawl to Jesus. He ran. To Jesus, and he reveres and respects Jesus. He kneels down in Jesus' presence. The man asks a question. It's clear and direct, and I think any of us would dream, any of us with a passion to communicate the good news of the gospel, to communicate. Um, to be an evangelist, to, to share the good news. I think any of us would dream of a situation where someone comes up to us and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Wow, his disciples must be thinking, Jesus gets all the easy questions, right? I mean, this is a softball for Jesus to hit out of the park. It would appear here to be a wonderful opportunity for Jesus to recruit a prized disciple. I mean, this man is healthy. He's already respecting Jesus. He's prominent in the community. He's described as a ruler. This is the prize recruit, or so the world would think. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Also, what must I do to have treasure in heaven? What must I do to enter the kingdom of God? What must I do to be saved? All of those expressions mean the same thing. This man, once again, in your mind's eye, picture him as the best that humanity can offer. He is respectful to Jesus. He is concerned about eternal life. And as we will see, he is morally upright at least outwardly and in his own understanding. Listen to the question again. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How would you answer that question to yourself? How would you answer that question if somebody else comes up to you and asks, how would the church, how would this church answer that question? What would we say to get the response that we want? Do we want to increase the number of people in the pews? What do we need to say? Do we want the, 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 at the end of the year the giving to be greatly increased? What do we need to say? What do we need to say to make what we want happen, happen? 
What a great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is going to answer that question with two commands. One expected and one not so expected. His first answer to the question, his first command is this, in a word, keep the law. And interestingly, did you notice as it was read, Jesus really didn't give a command. He said, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and so on. Jesus is expecting that if you know it, you'll obey it. Our Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy 30, do this and live. All rabbis in the first century, really on no matter what spectrum or which school they followed, would answer the question like Jesus. You know the commandments? Obey the commandments. Did you notice in this list that all but one come from the Ten Commandments? And yet all deal with love for neighbor. Have you noticed that? All are dealing with love for neighbor. And as John would say in his first epistle, how is our love for God displayed and made known? It's made known through our love for one another. How can we say we love God who we can't see if we don't love those around us who we can see? Now, why does Jesus say this? Jesus is testing whether his understanding of the law of God was outward and merely formal or inward and spiritual. Jesus is probing for sinful motives as well as for sinful actions. Notice how the man responds in verse 20. You know, for our confession of sin, what did we do? We just read together the Ten Commandments. And then we provided a time afterwards for us to reflect. Here's this man's reflection during his time of silent personal confession. Impulsively, what does he say? Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. This man did not need the assurance of forgiveness, the assurance of pardon. He stopped with just a time of personal confession in which the only thing he confessed is that he has obeyed everything from his youth. Well, that was the expected command of Jesus, the expected answer. Well, Jesus now comes to something more, a bit more unexpected. For we read this, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lacked one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Jesus says, sell, give, and follow. One thing you lack. Jesus here is often referred to as the great physician, and I'm still trying to find the exact text that great physician shows up, but I think the concept is absolutely right on. Jesus is not a physician in general here. He is a surgeon. He is a surgeon because he has surgeon-like skill 
and he cuts expertly. And in doing so, he exposes the man's need. He shows that in his attitude toward wealth, he's actually breaking the first commandment. Wealth is his God. Jesus knows it. Jesus wants to expose it. Indeed, the deception residing in this man's heart is now unveiled and exposed. To Jesus, to his disciples who were in the company of this encounter, and maybe to the man himself. Now, this is not a universal command, but this is a particular situation. Jesus knows his heart. Did you read verse 21 or did you hear verse 21? Before Jesus said, go sell and follow, we read this. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, Jesus loves this man. This is what love looks like. It looks like truth. It looks like bad news and good news. Those of you that know me know that I like reading articles more than books. I think it has to do with their length. Well, the other day, I ran across a great article, and I hesitate to say that because sometimes I probably say articles are great when they're not, but this was a great article. And I will tomorrow send everybody an email with a link to this great article. It's entitled, Love Your Neighbor Enough to Speak Truth. The author talks about in this article a time when she was speaking at a large church conference and afterwards a 75-year-old woman came up to her and said, quote, I have heard the gospel and I understand that I may lose everything. Why didn't anyone tell me this before? Why did people I love not tell me that I would one day have to choose like this? The author of the article continues by saying this. That's a good question. Why did not one person tell this dear image bearer that she could not have illicit love and gospel peace at the same time? Why didn't anyone throughout all of these decades tell this woman that sin and Christ cannot abide together? For the cross never makes itself an ally with the sin it must crush. Because Christ took our sin upon himself and paid the ransom for its dreadful cost. Everywhere in the gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, he denounces legalism. But Jesus preaches the law. And here we see the law is intended to drive a person to drive a sinner to Christ. How does the man respond that's on the operating table here? How does the this man who is being loved by being told truth in a gracious and gentle manner, how does he respond? We read in verse 22, disheartened 
by the saying. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He's gloomy. He's growing dark. He's disheartened. It adds he's sorrowful and he walks away. Well, let's revisit this encounter of a man, a young, wealthy, prominent man that he has with Jesus. Verse 18, we skipped intentionally. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, don't be confused by this question of Jesus. Jesus is after the self-righteousness that thinks that you can make yourself good and acceptable to God. Jesus, without saying it directly, is doing what Paul and others would later do in their letters. Jesus is talking about justification by faith. Not justification by works, by goodness, by reputation, or as R.C. Sproul says, the majority of people in America believe in justification by death. Jesus is drawing to, to our attention that it's not even justification by preaching. It's justification by faith. Jesus in saying, why do you call me good? And drawing attention to that it's God alone who is good. He's about to challenge this man's whole understanding of human moral goodness. Jesus is in a way specifically calling this man to repent and believe. Repentance, of course, involves not only the outward and overt sins. That's what the moralist is concerned about. No, it's the deeper sin of the self-justifying heart that Jesus is addressing. Jesus here is the great evangelist, and he's not lowering the bar. I want you all to step back and think about this. Who's the absolute best evangelist? I used to think it was Paul. I was wrong. It's Jesus. Jesus is the best. Nobody can tailor an evangelistic message better than Jesus. And how did Jesus do? He failed. Jesus didn't succeed. The man who got away. If Jesus is the fisherman, this is the big one that gets away. That should be an encouragement for all of us not to be lousy evangelists and lower the bar. But just realize that we are the messengers. We don't have the power of the message. That's in God's hands. The man got away. For all his goodness, this young man refuses to listen to to Jesus, and he goes away from him rather than following him. He clings to his wealth and is not prepared to deny himself and go the way of the cross. This man, in other words, gains the world but forfeits his life. Now, for this man, Jesus knew where to push, Jesus knew the center of gravity for this man. 
For this man, wealth was ultimate. He couldn't part with it. Well, I don't see many wealthy people here. But Jesus Taylor makes his gospel message to all of us, doesn't he? And what does Jesus say through the gospel about your life? And what in a time of prayerful examination would you say, if I didn't have this, I couldn't live. If I lost this, I would have no reason to live. If this is taken away from me, I have no hope. My friends, the answer to that question is your God. Now, the good news for the Christian is never will I leave you nor forsake you. Uh, Those who come to me, I will never cast out. But it's a good thing every now and then to ask ourselves, what is our functional God? We have our confessional faith, our professional faith. What is our functional faith? For this man despite his goodness, despite the fact that he recognized Jesus, bowed down to him, his earthly possessions were his God, and he was not going to part with them. Whereas this man was disheartened by the saying, the disciples were disoriented by the saying. Indeed, Jesus is going to further disorient them through his hard teaching. And so before we get to the question of the disciples, we've got to take a look at this hard teaching of Jesus. Because their question is set up by the hard teaching of Jesus. Look at verse 23. Jesus is saying, it's difficult for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And in response, we read in the first part of verse 24, the disciples were amazed. Why? Because great wealth was a sign of God's blessing at that time in many ways. At the end of verse 30, 24, Jesus speaks of it being difficult not just for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, no, no, it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. It is difficult for all to enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse 25, he uses a metaphor, a picture in children. I hope you heard this because we had camels and needles in this passage. The largest animal in Palestine, a camel, and the smallest opening that they could see, the eye of a needle. This is Jesus' way of saying, using the common everyday language and the illustrations available. Jesus is making a rhetorical, that is a for effect statement to say it's impossible. Just as a camel cannot go through the eye of a needle, so also it's impossible, not just for the wealthy really, but anyone to get into the kingdom. He's saying it in the most vivid fashion possible, that in terms of natural ability, it is utterly impossible for someone to get into the kingdom of God. Well, this hard teaching of Jesus prompts a question on the part of the disciples. Uh, Notice in verse 24, they are at first amazed. And then after this teaching, They are now exceedingly 
astonished. The question that had to have been brewing is asked. If the rich man can't enter the kingdom of God, then who can be saved? My friends, with this question on the lips of the disciples, they get it. They get it. This is on par with with Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. The disciples are getting it. Whereas the man came up with his own question, and remember, it was a good one. Jesus drove his disciples to ask the question, maybe not that they wanted to ask, but the question that they needed to ask. And it must be answered. Well, given Jesus's teaching here and the Bible's hard teaching in many places, how would you, not not how would you answer this question, because we're going to find out, but, but would you even ask this question? What's the question they asked? Then who can be saved? That's not a question that I often ask. But God's word should drive us all to that question. To this great question, Jesus will now give an unmistakable and unforgettable answer. Just as Jesus looked at and loved the man, notice in verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, look at verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said. He not only looked at them and said for the hard teaching, he's now looking at them, and even though the text doesn't say it, he loves them. He loves them. And he speaks to them. The answer that Jesus gives to this question is a declaration. The only way someone can enter the kingdom of God is through a divine miracle. Salvation is completely beyond the sphere of human possibilities. Every attempt to enter the kingdom of God on the basis of achievement or merit is futile. Remember last week, the kingdom of God is not achieved. The kingdom of God is received. Verse 27 is most likely a quote from Genesis 18:14 where Sarah responds or, or Sarah is, is um, knowing that she and Abraham in their old age are not going to be able to have children and, and we read in, in Genesis 18:14 the Lord saying this, "Is anything too hard for the Lord?" Sarah knew that it wasn't just unlikely, it was impossible that she and Abraham, given their their age, would have a son. But they believed. They believed. It. Look with me again in verse 27. With man, it. What's it? 
Salvation is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Salvation, absolutely impossible for man. Salvation, not impossible for God. In every instance that I could find using these words, possible with God, not too hard with God, it's talking about physical birth and spiritual birth. God is the author of both. Earlier in Mark 9, 23, we read this. Jesus said, all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus is making a presentation here of justification by faith, not justification by anything else. So we've just observed not just the encounter of Jesus with one man, but also, and possibly even more important, the encounter Jesus has with his disciples. Well, let's take a quick review of Mark chapter 10. In verses 1 through 12, there was the danger of a hard heart, the subject of marriage and divorce. And in verses 13 through 16, we see the need for a humble heart. Little children and Jesus. And today in verses 17 through 27, we see the need for a powerful work of God. When faced with the impossible, that is being asked to give up his worldly wealth, the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus. With man, salvation is impossible. When faced with the impossible, that is understanding how anyone could be saved or be in a right relationship with God, the disciples didn't walk away. But as we will continue to see as we move forward in Mark, they kept following Jesus and they would keep learning that with God, salvation is possible. Last week, I mentioned a talk that I listened to on a CD entitled, What is the Gospel? What is the Gospel and how does it change your life? And remember, those of you that were here last week, but it'll be new for those of you that weren't. There was a question asked in this talk, and the question was this, are you a Christian? And there were three answers provided. The first was, well, I'm trying. The speaker makes it clear that this person doesn't understand Christianity at all. There's no trying. Another answer is this, yes, of course I'm a Christian. This person doesn't understand the gospel. Of course, of course, like, like are you really sure, are you asking me? Of course I'm a Christian. The third answer is, is yes, I'm a Christian and it's a miracle. It's a miracle that I believe that God has had mercy on me, that I've received grace, that I've been brought and entered into the kingdom of God. This person with that answer understands the gospel. Well, last week I ended by asking the question, are you a Christian? But today I want to end with the answer to a different question. And that question is this, what made this gospel miracle possible? What makes salvation Possible, And for us to find it, we have to realize that there was, in order for us to find the answer to this question, 
we've got to step back and realize that there was another young, rich ruler. This ruler, when asked by his father, did leave his wealth and in doing so made possible the impossible of sinful man being restored to a right relationship with a holy God. Jesus was not only sent on a mission impossible, he wasn't actually sent on a mission impossible. Rather, he was sent on a mission possible, but only possible with God. Jesus, as the true, rich, young ruler. Consider Paul's words to the church in Corinth. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus, in other words, as he continues proclaiming the gospel, calling people to repent and believe, Jesus says, in effect, I was a rich young ruler too who had wealth, comfort, and status infinitely beyond what you have. And I gave it up in order to get you, to have you, and to bring you home. To rescue you, to save you, I had to leave my absolutely glorious wealth and go to the depths of absolute misery and abject poverty so that I could save you. I had to die so that you could live. My friends, when we see Jesus as the true rich young ruler who gave up all that he had to rescue us, we will be able to put all that we have into his hands, what we possess, what we own, indeed our very lives, and follow him all the way to our eternal and everlasting home. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these questions that reside in your word, and we thank you for the answers to these questions that reside in your word as well. Father, I thank you that through your word, you continue to drive your people to the realization that with man, all efforts and abilities to reach salvation are futile. They are impossible. And yet, with God, all things, all things related to salvation are possible. And as we heard earlier, all is possible to him who believes. And Father, we, like that man, also say we believe, help our unbelief. And so, Father, would you be pleased through your word and spirit to continue that great work of surgery in our own hearts and lives where uh, our hearts are exposed and sin is cut out. And healing grace is applied to the wound. Father, we thank you for Jesus. May we give up and follow him. For we pray in his name. Amen.